John chapter 17. It's an amazing chapter. I'll explain why as we get into it. Pray first. Father, thank you for, Lord, this awesome privilege of having a look inside the prayer life of Jesus, Lord, the most intimate and most personal aspect of a person's life is their prayer life. And uh, we get to a whole chapter of Jesus praying for us and for his disciples. And Lord, we just thank you that you put this in your word and, and we can see your heart for us and what you're praying for for us and what's important in your eyes for us and what we should be focused on as well. So I just pray that you'll help us to listen and to understand your heart as we look through this chapter in Jesus' name. Amen. So, background, the disciples are still walking from the upper room to the Garden of Olives or Garden of Gethsemane. It was a very long walk. It's been many weeks now. But, yeah, Jesus, this is Jesus' final prayer with his disciples. So, next chapter, chapter 18, starts with them crossing over the brook Kidron and Jesus being betrayed by Judas and being arrested. So, this is before that. This is just before they cross over. So, the Bible is filled with great prayers. There's Solomon's prayer in First Kings eight. There's Abraham's prayer in Genesis eighteen. There's Moses' prayer in Exodus thirty-two. And they're all great prayers. You can learn a lot from those prayers. But this prayer is by far the greatest recorded in the Bible, in my opinion, because it's by Jesus Himself. And as I mentioned, as I was praying, a person's innermost being is revealed by genuine prayer. This is a unique opportunity to see the nature and the heart of Jesus. And Jesus, as he prays, he touches on many of the themes developed in the Gospel, and of John especially, um, glory, glorify, sent, believe, world, and love. And so learn more about that. But you know what? A bit of self-introspection here. Don't put your hand up and share or anything, but you know your own heart and your own concern for other people by your prayers for those people. So you can say what you want, but how you pray for them, that's your true heart. So let's just read. Let's read John chapter 17. I'll read the whole chapter. I'm learning it up to verse 20 today, but I want to read the whole chapter because it's one prayer and we'll finish off next week. So, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested or revealed your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them 
the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. So here in this chapter, we have a peek into the most intimate part of Jesus' life, his prayer life. So Jesus went into the you know, the wilderness to pray. Well, now we know the kind of things that he was praying for. And uh, John Knox, there's a little quote here. John Knox, the great Scottish reformer of the 16th century, called John chapter 17, the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Scripture. 
So much did Knox love this chapter that as he lay on his deathbed, he had it read to him over and over again. And I believe John Knox's choice was a good one, because here in John chapter 17, Jesus is also approaching his own death. He's about to be crucified, and he pauses to talk things over with his father. It's almost like a summary of what he's done in his ministry on earth, about keeping the apostles and giving them the scriptures, giving them his word, etc. And he gives us an idea, actually it's a foundation for what is a successful Christian walk. What is a successful Christian church? What is God's standard of success? You know, the world names money and popularity and numbers and all those kind of things. But Jesus gives us a different, an entirely different way of evaluating our life and ministry. So verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. So he's been talking to the disciples about the Father. Now he's talking to the Father about the disciples. And that's what a priest does, right? They they're intermediate between God and men. So we talk to men about the Father, and then we talk to the Father about the men. That's, that's how it works. Now, Jesus lifted up his eyes when he prayed. Now, I don't do that. It's not really a Western culture to lift up your eyes when you pray. But it's a good illustration that we should never confuse the non-essential customs of prayer with the essential aspects of prayer. So the essential aspects is who you're praying to and the attitude of prayer. Whether you're laying down or standing up or sitting in a chair, who cares? Your heart's got to be right. And it says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. So it says, So your Son also may glorify you. So how does the cross glorify the Father? Well, the Son glorified the Father by revealing in the act the sovereignty of God over evil, the compassion of God for men, and the finality of redemption for believers. And that was a quote by a guy called Tenney. So how did the cross glorify God? By revealing the sovereignty of God over evil, the compassion of God for men, or the love of God for men and the finality or the completion of redemption for believers. And prayer, what's it for? Is it to get our will done in heaven, or, which oh, another way to say that is um, to get man's will done, or is it to get God's will done on earth? And that's the whole point here. Jesus is saying, glorify me so that you may be glorified even if it means suffering and dying on the cross. So that sounds sadistic. That sounds terrible. Why would you want to go through that? Well, there's a good reason. Because on the other side of the cross, there is a crown. Okay, what does James say about those who endure temptation? There's a crown of life waiting for them. Okay, so on the other side of suffering, there's great joy. It's full of great glory. So we only see a little way down the road, but God sees eternity. 
So Jesus is looking past the cross. Jesus is looking to us. He's seeing us with him for all eternity. And he thinks, well, that's well worth the cost of dying on the cross. And it's really important that we, as believers, get the big picture and stop saying, and God do it my way. There's a little analogy here. And God is not hungry, Jacks. We can't give orders about how things should be done and then complain when we don't get the lettuce and onions we ask for. God is the King of Kings, and He sees what is going on, and He knows what's going to be best in the long run. Verse 2, As you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, here's a bit of apologetics. So, one of the objections that people have is, I don't believe God is knowable. How can you know God? Well, here's a quote from Ray Comfort. It is amazing how it's human nature to assume that because we believe or don't believe something, that makes it true. Some may not believe in the law of gravity and may feel that they have evidence to back up their belief. However, gravity exists whether they believe in it or not. The truth is, God is knowable. Jesus testified, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We not only have the testimony of the scriptures to tell us this, but we have the testimony of multitudes of Christians who know the Lord personally. It is more truthful to say, I don't want to know God. Sinful man runs from him as did Adam in the Garden of Eden. So, getting back to the verse, you have given him authority over all flesh. So, Jesus has authority over the destiny of all people. Jesus is God. That he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So again, Jesus is the great and exclusive channel of eternal life. You cannot come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. So, The word know there is gnosko, and it refers to an experiential knowledge of God. Not just knowing about something like reading a textbook, but to experience. And uh, Guthit's got a quote which helps explain this. Life is active involvement in an environment. Death is the absence of that active involvement. Eternal life means that we are alive and active to God's environment. If our lives are not dominated by God and the spiritual environment, we live in the same dimension that animals do, and we live as if we are dead to God and His environment. So, where are we now? Where does Ephesians say we are now? We're seated in the heavenlies, that's it, yeah. So our environment is heaven. 
we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Okay, that is our position. We have Christ in our hearts. Okay, we have heaven inside of us. The kingdom of God is in you. So that's our environment. We might be living in this world, but we're dead to this world. We're alive to God. And so we should be living as if we're living in that environment. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. Now, that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. We can ask ourselves, who has received the glory? So maybe you're an excellent mother, a gifted musician, a deep Bible teacher, a wonderful neighbor, a hard worker. But who receives the glory in your life? Jesus has a way of working where, without exception, every time he did something good, every time he showed power, Scripture says that people saw it and glorified God in heaven. Matthew 5.16 Let your light so shine among men that they might see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. So what about us? What about me? And we can ask ourselves, who's getting the glory in my life? Are people saying, oh, well done, David? Or people saying, man, God's really using you. Or I can't believe you did that. That must be God. (laughs) How can a foolish guy like you do that? So if people say something like that, I'm going, that's awesome. I'm glad they're calling me foolish because they're seeing that it's not me doing this, but it's God. And you can look up 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. that God's using the foolish things to bring glory for himself. And verse 4, the second part, I have finished the work. Now, what did Paul say? I have run the race, I have finished the course, all right, finished the work. So Jesus, with divine confidence and assurance, sees the work on the cross as already finished. As you go through, he says, I want the disciples to be where I am. Well, he's not in heaven yet, and that's where he wants the disciples to be. But he's speaking as if he's already there. And quite often in the scriptures, God speaks as if something has happened even before it has happened. Because when God says something is going to happen, it's as good as done. In fact, in God's eyes, it is already done. And so from his perspective, in eternity, it is already done. And that's the confidence and assurance that we can have in the work of God in our lives too. Because just like Christ already saw the work of the cross finished, even before he'd gone to the cross, he sees the work and the transformation in us as complete too. The book of Romans says he sees us as already glorified. So we need to see each other in the same way, the way God sees us. So Jesus didn't say, I started the work, or I thought about the work, or I was going to get through the work. He said, I have finished the work. And uh, someone said, the roads from Bible studies and Bible conferences are strewn with the broken commitments of men and women who began but never finished what God told them to do. If God puts something on your heart to do, finish it. What about Noah? I'm sure glad that Noah finished the ark. Otherwise, we'd all be sunk, right? One application for finishing the work is ministry, the work that God has for us in ministry. 
It could be service in the church, witnessing, giving to missionaries, etc. But another application for finishing the work is putting to death the flesh. It's saying no to sin and getting rid of anything in our lives that hinders us in our relationship with God. And the Amalekites in the Old Testament are a picture of the flesh. And God told King Saul to completely annihilate the Amalekites, and he didn't want to. And later on in his life, it came back to bite him. So we don't want to make Saul's mistake. If there's sin in our lives, it's not a matter of partially dealing with it. So here's a little quote for you. Maybe it's a certain sin that's got to go and you think, well, I've got it pretty much taken care of. I know the Lord's told me not to do this, but I've cut way back. Have you finished it? No, but I've got it under control. Watch out. Agag is out to get you. So, you know, the flesh is going to come and get you. If you don't completely finish dealing with that sin, that thing that might be holding you down, then it will come back. The last part of verse 4 which you have given me to do. Now the work, Jesus has finished the work that God had given him to do. Now this is really important for me because, for example, in Mark one thirty-seven, it says the whole city wants you. He'd been ministering there in someone's house, healing people and stuff, and then the whole city comes around. Now Jesus has been out praying in the morning. He's been seeking direction from the Father And guess what? God the Father tells him, I don't want you there today. I want you out in the wilderness. And so, what does Jesus do? He disappears. Not literally, but he goes away from the city, ignores all those people. Not because he doesn't care, but because the Father said, I've got somewhere else for you to be today. Now, the people of Jesus' day accused him of being a lot of things, a wine-bibber, a glutton, demon-possessed, and crazy. But one thing they never accused him of was being busy. He was never accused of being busy. So Jesus moved with a paced peace and an ordered steadiness because he knew the heart of the Father. People's burdens will give you an ulcer. People's expectations will drive you crazy. And you can think of it this way. When the burden is not light, you can be pretty sure that you're not doing the will of the Father because his burden is light. Okay, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we spend time in the morning with the Lord and we ask for his direction, morning by morning we will find that his yoke is easy and his burden light because we're doing only the things that he wants us to do and not the things that we fill our lives up with, which are good, but not necessarily the will of God. So verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So this speaks of God's eternal existence. And just to recap on this, looking at it from apologetics again, in verse 24, coming up, says that the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. Hebrews 7.3 tells us that Jesus has no beginning. John 8.58 tells us that Jesus existed before 
Abraham and John 1, 1-3 tells us that Jesus existed before the creation of the world. So here is another verse which talks about the eternal nature of Jesus, that he is God. And it also says, The glory which I had with you before the world was. So again, thinking apologetically, the evidence for the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus could not have prayed this prayer, the glory which I had with you before the world was, because he has to be equal with the Father to pray this prayer. In Isaiah 42 verse 8 and 48 verse 11, God proclaims that he shares his glory with no one. So if the Father and Son share their glory, then they both must be God. So verse 6, I have manifested or revealed your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. So manifested or revealed. The word manifest is fanaru, which means to shine forth. So it's not about speaking, it's about living. I have lived out who you are. I've demonstrated practically who you are, Father. And First Timothy 3.16, Great is a mystery, Paul writes, that God was manifest or revealed, lived out in the flesh. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is what Jesus has done. He's fleshed out who the Father is. So we look at his life, and Jesus says, You have seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, why is it so important that we have a good witness and not just good words? He's going to talk about what he said later on. But why is it so important that we have a good witness and not just good words? Well, when Moses gave the law to the people of Israel, he had a glowing face. And the law is quite hard to take. For us as human beings, sinful human beings, when we hear the law, it convicts us because it tells us that we have broken God's law, we are sinners. And we see who God is, his perfection, and then we see who we are and we go, oh, that's a tough message. But because Moses' face glowed and Jesus, when he spoke to people about their sin, many examples there, I won't go into them now, but you know, he spoke with love and compassion, like a figuratively a glowing face, okay? So if we come down on our friends and kids and we're growling instead of glowing, then they'll resent you and reject the instruction or the law that you bring, the message you bring. Your kids will rebel, your friends will leave, your employees will quit because they resent what you share because you've got a cold heart, your face isn't glowing with love. But if, like Moses and Jesus, you're spending time with the Father and you're full of the love of God, then when you share that message, it comes across differently. It's the same message, but it's more easily received. Verse 8, for I have given to them the words which you have given me. So I have given them your words. And this isn't the scriptures yet, that's coming up. 
the word here is rhema and refers not to the written word but to the spoken word. And it's also found in Ephesians 6.17 in conjunction with the sword of the Spirit. So it's referring to a particular word to a particular person. And as an example, John 4.18, You have said well that you have no husband. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband at all. So he had this word for that lady. That was his word for her. And he's had words for the disciples too, to instruct them, to disciple them, and to lead them. Here's a funny story. There's a, some high school kids who were preaching at the top of their lungs on the way to school and using their Bibles as megaphones. <laughs> and they got kicked out of school because they refused to quit preaching. And now they're being homeschooled. Now, obviously what they're doing doesn't seem right, people did say, but they are preaching the Word. Well, it's not done in the right way. When we preach the Word, it's got to be done in the right attitude. And that's the way Jesus did it too. So verse 8, the second part, And they have received them, and known, so the disciples have received those words, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So how is Jesus glorified in us? This is a quote from Chuck Smith. Jesus prayed about all those who had been given to him, that is, about his disciples, and those who would later believe, including us. And he said, I am glorified in them. So how can he be glorified in us? As we trust in him and obey him, he is glorified. Paul said that we are to the praise of the glory of his grace, Ephesians 1.6. God is glorified when we respond to what he has done for us by praising him for his love and grace. He is blessed, and seeing us, he says, that's my boy. Jesus continues, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. Now, another evidence for the deity of Christ, and anyone can say to the Father, all mine is yours, well, that's easy, but we can't say all yours is mine, because it doesn't work that way. Now, another danger for us is, it says, again, I am glorified in them. I've talked about this before, but just to repeat it, no one should be glorified in the believer other than Jesus. And if you look around today, there's leaders in the church who have a tendency to glorify themselves in their followers instead of pointing to Jesus. So it's just something to be wary of, try and avoid that situation. Verse 11, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So, how does Jesus keep us? It's through your name, through the name of the Father. What does that mean? Through the Father's 
power, through the Father's authority, through the Father's nature. And he says, I pray not for the world. So what does the word world here mean? Well, it could mean the planet, but in this case it's not. Like the earth, as it uses the word there in Job 37.12. It could mean all of humanity, like it refers to in John 3.16. But here, the word world is talking about the world system. So, He's not praying to transform the system, not to politically organize or change the system, but he is praying for those who the Father has called out of the world system. And this is Jesus' first request for the disciples. Father, keep them. So, Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Now, God is glorified by the completion of his work in us. And our continuing on in Jesus is not left to our efforts alone. The world, the flesh and the devil are so mighty, so persuasive and so seductive that we could never keep ourselves in our own efforts. If we stay with Jesus, it is because Jesus has already prayed for us, Father, keep them. So if you're walking with the Lord today, That is an answered prayer. It's pretty cool, eh? Jesus prayed, Father, keep them, and we can't do it in our own strength. So if you're walking with the Lord, it's because of this prayer that Jesus has prayed, and he's still praying for you. He's always interceding for us. Verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And if you go back to John chapter 10, remember we're in the Father's hands and we're in the Son's hands. We're in Jesus' hands too. And nothing can take us out of his hands. And a quote from John Corson here, I have kept them, Jesus said. What about us? In one sense, in order to apply this to our lives, we need to realize that we cannot keep our children grandchildren, or people to whom we're linked in ministry because they're not ours to keep. They're his. You have opportunities one day at a time to be a blessing to your children and others to whom you minister, to serve them, discipline them, and love them. But you can't cling to them because they're not yours. And you can reference Ezekiel 18 verse 4 there. I cannot keep or hold on to people selfishly but I must keep them in my heart tenderly. And this is what Paul speaks of in virtually all his epistles when he says, I have you in my heart. Old Testament priests wore stones representing each tribe over their hearts on a breastplate and on their shoulders because there's a connection between the burden of intercession and the heart of compassion. When you pray for people, you will find that as you bear them on your shoulders in intercessory ministry, they will become jewels on your heart. So you'll start to love those people. So that was from John Corson. And verse 12, And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So the word perdition literally means wasteful. So what did Judas say when Mary anointed Jesus with oil? The son of waste himself said, Is that not wasteful? 
couldn't it have been used more practically? And John 12, 45 is a reference there. The son of perdition could not understand the reason someone would give anything or do anything for Jesus that was worth anything. What did Jesus say? Have I not chosen you, yet one of you is a devil. So Judas was never saved and that's why he was never kept. So don't make your life a waste. Don't waste your life. Live it for the Lord. And 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. Now, the word in verse 8 was rhema. Here the word is logos. And this refers to the scriptures. I have given them the scriptures. Another phrase there, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So what's God's purpose for us? Is to multiply joy in our lives, not to subtract it. Now the world will tell us that God just wants to, you know, stop you from doing the fun things. But God wants his joy to be fulfilled in our lives. And that only will be experienced as we abide in him. Verse 14, the second part. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the world system hates believers, and in this case the disciples, because they are not a part of the world system. So what is the world system? Well, it's everything around you. What's on TV, what's on the radio, what's in the movies, what's in the newspapers, what's in the government, what's in schools. It's all the world system, and it's horrible. It's just, it's shocking if you compare it to what the truth of the Bible is. It's no wonder that we're hated because we reveal the sinfulness of the world system. So, it says, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, we should not be surprised when we get a negative response to the gospel. They tried to kill Jesus ten times, the, the religious leaders did. Now, let's have a look at, just quickly, what happened to Paul in the book of Acts as he preached the gospel. And just to get a bit of perspective here on what can happen to us as we preach the gospel. Acts chapter thirteen forty five. the crowd began to contradict and blaspheme. Acts thirteen fifty, Paul and Barnabas were persecuted and thrown out of the region. Acts fourteen five, the crowd plotted to stone them, forcing them to flee. Acts fourteen nineteen, Paul was stoned and left for dead. Acts sixteen twenty three, both Paul and Silas were beaten with many stripes and thrown in prison. Acts eighteen six, Paul's hearers opposed him and blasphemed. So when you hear that word blasphemed, you know, our unbelievers can use the Lord's name in vain and turn what you're saying around. Acts 19, 26-29, his hearers are full of wrath and seized to Paul's companions. Acts twenty twenty three, the Holy Spirit warned Paul that bonds and afflictions awaited him wherever he preached the gospel. Acts chapter 22, verses 21-22. His listeners called for his death. 
23 verses 1 and 2, as soon as he began to speak, he was smacked in the mouth. Acts 23.10, after Paul spoke, there was great dissension in the crowd and he was nearly pulled to pieces. Acts 23 verses 12 and 13, more than 40 Jews conspired to murder him. And in Acts 24 verse 5, Paul is called a plague, a creator of dissension and a ringleader of a sect. So, it's going to be tough. This life is going to be tough. And Jesus, again and again, he's warning the disciples that I tell you these things so that you may not stumble. So you're not going to be surprised when these things happen. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but they should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, this is a beautiful statement, which I really love. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, what are the disciples about to do? They're about to desert Jesus. They're about to do their own thing. They're about to go back into the world. And Jesus says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Isn't that cool? These disciples who were fickle and failing and lacking faith, lacking understanding, Jesus says, they're not of the world. Wow. So, we don't need to be perfect to be unworldly. Obviously, we're going to suffer if we go into the world and do the things of the world. But I think this comes back to our position in Christ. Positionally, we are in the heavenlies. We are not of this world. And another quote here from Chuck Smith, in the world, we are here in the world to fulfill the purposes of God, and that's why he's left us here. He wouldn't leave us in this dark, sinful world unless he had a good reason, and his reason is that we could be a light in this world, bearing witness of his love. So he has left us in the world, praying that we would be protected from the evil one. In the next verse, Jesus said that we are not of the world. We are in the world to share the love of Jesus, but we are not of the world. We are just aliens passing through our way to heaven. So, who believes in aliens? I'm looking at some, right? <laughs> Sojourners, temporary residents, okay? 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So this is Jesus' second request for the disciples, sanctify them. So the first one was keep them or protect them. Now it's sanctify them. So what does sanctify them mean? It means to be set apart for God's special pleasure and use. It implies holiness, being set apart from the corruption of the world for God's use. And how are we sanctified? Oh, it's by your truth, it's by the truth. So Jesus didn't just leave the disciples to sanctify themselves. He prayed for their sanctification. So this process, just like the keeping process, is not left to us to do. It's a work of God in us and through us. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And the dynamic behind sanctification or the power or the means is truth. And it's the word of God. If you read it, hear it, understand it and apply it. So, your word is truth. 
where do we find truth? Is it just in the scriptures? I believe it's more. I like what John Corson says. He says, truth comes in a three-volume set. The first volume is the scriptures of what you can learn from. The second is the Son, John 14.6, a person you can love. And the third is the Spirit, 1 John 5.6, a power to live by. If you are learning from the scriptures, loving the Son, and living in the Spirit, then and only then will you be walking in truth. Verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Elton Trueblood says, Evangelism is not a professional job for a few trained men, but is instead the unrelenting responsibility of every person who belongs to the company of Jesus. It's from the Evidence Bible. So I have sent them. So Jesus not only kept those entrusted to him, protected them, but he sent them out. He made opportunities for them. Remember, it says in Ephesians, for us, Ephesians 2, He's prepared good works for us to do. So he says we are not of the world, but yet he sends us into the world. So for us as believers, it's really, really important that we are not of the world, that we keep ourselves separate from the world. But at the same time, we must be in the world. And monasteries... Uh, the mistake in that thinking is isolation from the world. You can get away, yes, but don't stay away. Jesus ripped into that wrong understanding when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, you can't walk on the other side of the street to avoid the stench and infection of the world. The answer lies not in isolation, but in incarnation. For just as God became man, yet retained his deity, so us, as believers, Although we live among humanity, we're linked to Jesus. We're linked to eternity. We're linked to heaven. So we're here in the flesh, but we're really living in the heavenlies. And that's where our hope, our destiny, our source of strength, our identity is. Here's a little um, story. In the aftermath of the December 7th bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese there, Divers were sent to rescue the survivors. In one compartment of the USS Utah, however, it was impossible to get to the men trapped inside. The divers could hear men tapping in Morse code. Is there any hope? But rescue was impossible with the technology then available. So picture yourself as a deep sea diver. You're in this environment and you're connected to the surface and the oxygen is the spirit and the scriptures okay and there's people down there to rescue so we kind of jump in into this world and we have to find these people who need rescuing and we do that as god leads us and he guides us verse 19 and 20 and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word so Jesus prays not only for those with him at the time that's the disciples but also 
for those who believe later on, which is you and me. So, Jesus knows the disciples are going to fail him, but he also knows, like he said to Peter, when you have come back to me, strengthen your brethren. So, we might stumble and fall. What does Jesus say to us? When you come back to me, strengthen your brethren. He knows the work on the cross is not for nothing. It's never for nothing. Okay, When we love, it's never for nothing. He wasn't hoping on the disciples. He's not hoping that he might get something done through us. He knows he will. Because Christ will complete what he has begun. So if you fall down, get back up and keep going. Focus on your love relationship with Jesus. And make pleasing Jesus your first priority. And then everything else will just work itself out. So as a summary of what we've done today, there's a fair bit. The first main thing that Jesus prayed for the disciples was, keep them, Father, please keep them. And the second was, sanctify them. So we are protected, we're in God's hands, we're safe. So whenever you feel unsafe, just remember this, that you are actually safe. All right. And sanctified, which means to be set apart for God's special pleasure and use. It implies holiness, being set apart from the corruption of the world and set aside for God's use. And in Corinthians it talks about different vessels of honour and dishonour and things like that. It's a good thing to read about sanctification there. But for us today, we just think about ourselves as being pure and holy and being able to be used by God because if we're of the world then God can't really use us very much because we're dirty so to speak we're unclean we need to be clean we need to be separate and how do we do that it's by the word of God we need to read it hear it understand it and apply it so Father I just thank you Lord for these scriptures and we look forward to next week which talks about unity but Lord here is the first two requests one that you keep us safe in your hands Lord we don't have to fear anything nothing can separate us from your love even if we are slaughtered like sheep day after day it doesn't matter despite all these things we are more than conquerors overwhelming victory is ours So we just praise you for that. And Lord, help us to sanctify ourselves by abiding in you, by being in your word, by being cleansed by your word as we love you and are led by your spirit. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.